When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. Hey guys, how we doing? We doing all right? How holding in there with the uh, the revolution outside and the pandemic inside. I don't even know where to begin. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I am recording this on June 18th, 2020. You might have noticed that it's been a little while since I did an episode of this. About a week, in fact. And that is because, I can't say too much about it, but I signed a book deal, and I have a book coming out next year, and the deadline is ASAP. If you know anything about the publishing industry, they have all these old, you know, requirements and there's a lot of cogs in the machine and a lot of it dates back to the pre-internet age when you had to line up distributors and ad buys and I don't know, all kinds of stuff. And um, we're going to try that this time around. So I won't be doing like an episode every few days, but you know. I will be keeping up on top of this. Um, I'm still tracking the strange behaviors and attitudes of the right-wing people uh, taking advantage of this moment of unrest. Most shockingly, um, Staff Sergeant Stephen Carrillo, who uh, killed two police officers just for the hell of it, apparently, to start the boogaloo. In Oakland, California, uh, now we have black men hanging from trees in California. Um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right-wing militia members were arrested after somebody was shot while toppling a racist statue. And, uh, you know, all this with the backdrop of the protests, but also just people beginning to understand what's going on in their country and understand that it's not just something they can watch on the news you know people understanding that there's actually something to be done about it hoping to uh make a little sense of what's going on in this moment i contacted a couple people from the world of letters. Um, first, we're going to speak to uh, Jared Yates Sexton, an American author and political commentator from Linton, Indiana. He's currently an associate professor at uh, Georgia Southern University, and he has a book coming out. looks pretty interesting. It's called American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. And really, he's got a really good understanding of the intersection between conspiracy theories and the far right and how they influence American culture and not in a great way. So he had a lot to say about that and kind of about this moment we are in in particular. So I'm going to play the second half of the interview for you here. And the first half is available for readers of my newsletter. It is free, but you got to sign up for it. So if you go to lennyflatley.substack.com, you can sign up and check out the rest of this interview. And without further ado, here is Jared Yates Sexton. So 
one of the the things that I think everybody gets wrong is they sort of think that a nation is a nation. You know, it's sort of a top-down view of how things work. Like America is America and it can just always be America. But Actually, one of the the principal philosophical underpinnings of America was a rejection of the idea of top-down authority. It was always the idea, um, particularly from the idea of the social contract from Rousseau, the idea that sovereignty actually comes from the people, right? And so that the people hand over certain amounts of rights or certain amounts of power to the state because the state is supposed to protect them and provide for them and make life better. Right. Um, and, and actually, you know, like if you look back at philosophers like John Locke, John Locke in England would say, you know, a king who doesn't actually take care of his people is at war with his people. Right. Which was the basis of this idea of sovereignty back and forth. Um, the, the sad truth. And, and listen, I, I know this might sound alarmist at the beginning, but it's, it's 100 percent true. America has stopped serving the interest of its people. Uh, this government has been bought and sold by corporations, special interests, and our parties have become so entrenched in their own, um, what I call a soap opera. I think it's, I think it's all spectacle for entertainment, you know, replete with characters, villains, heroes, all that stuff. It's become something that we're supposed to watch, but feel like we can't participate in. Um, on top of that, not everybody can run for office anymore. You have to be able to raise millions upon millions of dollars to do so. Um, and, and our interests are being served. We, we, we've been failed by the government. And, and I think one of the reasons why the Black Lives Matters protests have taken off the way that they have is not just because we've had a pandemic, which is obviously, you know, wreaked havoc, but we have a country and a government that has shown it not just an inability to fight the pandemic and the resulting economic depression, they've shown a complete unwillingness to do it. And I believe that it has exposed that this government cannot honor the sovereignty of the people. It can honor the social contract. And so what ends up happening in failed states is as trust in government and as that sovereignty becomes questioned, eventually what happens is there comes a break in the contract and the people rise up and the only thing the state can do is defend itself. Right. It can't offer you any sort of assistance. It can't uh, it can't honor any type of safety. It can't honor any type of contract. So what it has to do is actually crush the will of the people. So they'll stop. And, and what ends up happening is you end up in a state where the people don't respect the government and the government doesn't respect the people. But they want the people to be afraid and intimidated in order to not voice their concerns or use their rights. They would much rather people had rights that they didn't use as opposed to being an authoritarian fascistic state. Right. And um, and, you know, definitely COVID is uh, it's the late, you know, it's the most dramatic, but it's really only the latest in a long line of things that, you know, the state has no longer able to do. Yeah. And and. You know, I get really frustrated, particularly in um, in the middle of like a campaign season like this one. I tell everyone all the time, Donald Trump is not the disease. He's a symptom. You, a, a, a country that is sane and working and functional does not elect Donald Trump president. You know, you know that, that doesn't happen. Um, it, it never would have occurred had this country not had underlying problems. And, and what I ended up finding out, and this is one of the reasons why I ended up writing American Rule, is I could give you an explanation of why the parties have become what they are. And I can give you or I could give you like a, a pretty quick CNN definition of why Donald Trump got elected. But that doesn't tell us the story that needed to be told. What actually it turned out and I had to do the research on this and it was all right there for the taking. You just have to scratch underneath the surface is that America has not only been created on systematic inequality and brutality, but that throughout the entire course of this country, the story of America has been completely scrubbed of its evils and its sins in order to make it more palatable to the world. And the instances I've found is this has been a combination of people doing it for political purpose and in other times people doing it explicitly 
for political purposes, right? The idea that they could do it and then other times that they would intentionally do it. Like Woodrow Wilson, for instance, uh, before we went into World War One, hired a bunch of propagandists to basically get rid of America's, you know, uh, economic inequality and white supremacy. And then we we busted into World War One. We're like, hey, we're the champions of the world. Welcome. And, you know, so what's actually happened was America has been broken and teetering on the edge of collapse and chaos since it was founded. But this is one of those instances where the disease, so to speak, has just become terminal at this point. And, and it's, it's dragging the country into the abyss day by day. And then does this necessarily lead to managed democracy? Is that the next step of... That's the unfortunate thing. So, you know, just to get definitions out there, I assume the listeners are probably familiar, but there might be a couple, you know, not there yet. Liberal de- liberal democracy is the idea that, you know, the state is supposed to move forward. It's supposed to rely again on the sovereignty of the people and, and you know, democratic institutions guide it, right? It's about giving people freedom and, and sharing an open society. The truth is that America has never had that. Like, everyone likes to talk about, you know, we say make America great again as if the 1950s were awesome. They weren't great for people of color or LGBTQ Americans or women. You know, it was it was rough. Um, but a managed democracy is more like that. It's a state like 1950s America where on the outside it looks like everything's great and everyone's, you know, enjoying themselves and they're driving Model T. I don't know what they drove. I assume they had fins on it. And, you know, going to drive in movies. But meanwhile, there's an underclass of people who are repressed, right? And everything that we see is manufactured. And it would look a lot more, and the the, the, the term managed democracy actually um, came out of Putinist Russia um, post-2000. And, and this is sort of a, a state where you have this illusion of democracy. And meanwhile, the state controls everything. You know, this is how Donald Trump lies about everything and yells fake news and nobody knows what's what. And eventually over time, and the Soviet Union showed us this it could be achieved. And then later on, Putin and Putinish Russia showed us this could be achieved. If you lie enough, eventually the people just stop expecting the truth. And they stop expecting democracy. And it sort of crushes their will and it sort of crushes their back to the point where, again, maybe they have, quote unquote, rights, but they don't use them. Because why would you? Nothing could possibly change. And suddenly the game is rigged beyond the point of it ever being even, you know, manageable. And is, is that is that what Woolen, I think his name, man, uh, inverted totalitarianism, is that what he is that the same thing, what he called inverted totalitarianism? Yeah, it's the idea that you have total power, but you don't necessarily have to wield it, Mm -hmm. right? Like, eventually what ends up happening, and this is the really perverted part about it, what ends up happening is that the weight of totalitarianism is carried by the people, right? And so, like, let's say... Let's say theoretically, right? The Black Lives Matters protest. And we've seen a shift in the past uh, couple of weeks. It's gone from, you know, police are still brutalizing people in the streets, right? But when this started, it was much more of a war, right? It was like, we do not want you in the street and we will brutalize you until you leave the street. Well, eventually in a society like what we're talking about, the state wouldn't need to send troops out anymore. It wouldn't have to, you know, have law enforcement go out and crack skulls. Eventually, people would just be like, why would I go outside and risk myself? Right. And so what ends up happening is the people end up carrying away. And if you look back at like the history of the Soviet Union, um, they started participating in the lies. They, they knew that the government was lying to them. And as a result, they started, you know, sort of participating in it. Um, there's a really good term that people should look up if they haven't had a chance. It's called hypernormalization. And hypernormalization is a state where you know that the reality that you are living in is not real, but you still participate in it. And because you participate in it, you actually lend it credence and power and reality. The uprising that we're seeing now, the, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd protests. Um, you said that they're just like a natural result of kind of being at the end of our rope as far as um, states failed us. Um, what, um, I mean, like, are there, 
do you see potential for reform coming out of these this mass movement, or is it just kind of the death throes of democracy? A little depressing, but... No, I mean, it, it is depressing. There, there's different ways to look at it. So, like, on one hand, um, you can look at it through a lens of what I call left-wing melancholia, um, which is the idea, you know, that, like, the left could never possibly win anything. And, and a lot of us have been had that beaten into us. I know um, I started coming into my political own starting in like 2003 during the the drumbeat to the Iraq war. Right. And I was like, this war is illegal and awful. We shouldn't go. And I watched the country dive headlong into it and make one of the worst mistakes in modern history. So you can start to say, okay, this will not do anything. And, and I'll give you the case for it. And, and this is what I would say. I would give you three scenarios from all of this. One scenario is the worst case scenario, which is, um, and unfortunately we're seeing this happen right now, uh, which would be right-wing vigilantes, Trumpists, and militias going out into the cities and the streets and um, attacking protesters. I mean, uh, last night um, we saw, Monday night, we saw um, a militia, the Civil Guard, I believe they're calling themselves, uh, in New Mexico, we saw one of them shoot somebody. And, uh, you know, we're we're hearing all these stories about Boogaloo boys being in the streets and like escalating things Um, killed a cop. One of them did, Um, you know, so like we could see we could see violence and blood in the streets from those sort of things. We have a history of that. I mean, the um, civil rights had that. Obviously, the 50s, 60s, 70s all had that. Um, That's that's probably the worst case scenario. And that could plunge us into a really bad place. The next is that we get tertiary reform. And tertiary reform would be like, I don't know, you ban chokeholds, you know, or maybe more body cams or maybe they get sensitivity training. I don't know. The best case scenario isn't necessarily spontaneous revolution or spontaneous change, but people need to start to realize that you build these things like this is a huge building of a leftist power structure. Right. So like you have people out in the streets, you're building. I mean, what was the last poll? It was like 72, 73 percent of Americans now understand what white privilege is and, you know, that that white supremacy infects law enforcement. That's the beginning of a major voting block. I mean, when's the last time like 70 percent of Americans believed in anything? And then you're starting to get you're going to get leaders from this. You're going to get people from these protests who see that protests can make a difference. And that means they'll do more protests. That means that they'll, you know, they'll fight for more things. And so what actually ends up happening is you have action that builds off itself. It scaffolds itself. So the best case scenario is that this thing continues and then it builds because I'm sorry, but the state's not going to get better anytime soon. Even if Donald Trump isn't reelected, that's only like the staunching of a wound. Right. That doesn't actually make everything better. And the, the hope is that it might actually build this sort of scaffolding of power and protest. You know, you're you're talking about tertiary reform and people actually understanding there's a concept of like systemic racism now, which, you know, three weeks ago, that's unheard of. I was just reminded of this uh, one militia leader that I'm friends with on Facebook. He wrote this long post and it begins so here I go, as a very conservative and proud white man going on record to affirm the existence of systemic racism. And then he goes like that for like, you know, eight paragraphs. And, you know, it was just kind of like the conversation has definitely shifted in some ways. Um, and it's really, it's really an amazing thing to see. But, you know, I think the fear is that people poised to take most advantage of this moment are the realists, you know, from either the White House or, you know, corporations or Silicon Valley, and that um, they're playing, it's like they're playing a different game than than we are. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, so I, I'm really glad that you brought up corporations and this whole thing, because it's like, you know, everybody from Twizzlers to like uh, Pepperoni, you know, has like sent out like a tweet. It's like, we support Black Lives Matter or whatever. Now, listen, I, I'm I'm really grossed out by these things because, you know, it's like I, I'm, I'm an academic, right? I've watched administrators create these statements that just sound like everything but mean nothing. Right. And it's 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 about it's about public relations. It's about providing a front that says we believe this thing, even while our actions don't show it. 
it makes me happy for a couple of reasons. One is that corporations, they pick winners, right? They look at history and they decide which side of history they need to be on. And it is obvious that they understand that for future purposes, that progressivism is going to win out. They know that progressivism is going to own the future and that this backward sort of looking fascism has no place whatsoever. So they're putting their money and their investment in it. That, that That's good, number one. Number two, and I don't know if this is going to be the case because, man, they would much rather throw a couple of million at a cause and seem like they're behind it as opposed to actually have cultures of change. My hope is that it can be used as cudgels of change. So like if they go out and they say, we support Black Lives Matter, we support inclusivity and diversity, and then it can be like, well, show us, you know, what, what's your boardroom look like? And, and those are the types of ways. Now, I, I would much rather have a head-on sort of fight over how this system creates systemic inequality as opposed to how to reform it from the inside out. But I, I do gain a little bit of hope from that while also understanding that most of it's pretty hollow, right? Like it, it, it's, it's pretty disgusting is the word. It's, it's pretty disgusting the way that they do these things, particularly these companies that have created these systems and, you know, benefited from them. But on one hand, I look at it and I'm like, okay, well, at least we understand where they think the winner is going to come from. Mm-hmm. And, and how does, you know, an authoritarian state look not, this year, but maybe in 10 years where, you know, the demographic changes in this country are so, you know, so pronounced, you know, Generation Z and the millennials having, you know, being a much more progressive generation. But even beyond that, just like whites no longer being the majority, you know, in the future. Um, I mean, I I'm not so naive as to think that just because those things are happening, they're no longer corporations or fascists are going to have power but like how does authoritarianism look in a country like that this is a nightmare and i don't know if people who are listening are going to understand how nightmarish this is and maybe they will um so one of the only reasons why we're having this conversation is because i built up my own platform on like twitter right like i i happen to have like my work hit like a note on Twitter. And since then I've, you know, built up this sort of presence on there and it's, it's gone through whatever. Twitter has been very good to me, but Twitter is also a pinball machine. And basically Twitter through, if you look at technological history, social media is all about power. It's being powered by persona and anxiety. Right. And so one of the things that people have done obviously is performative outrage it's turned into a thing where it's like, you know, like we just talked about Twizzlers or Pepperoni sending out the statement on Black Lives Matter. We all send out those statements, right? We all want to be on the record that we're on the right side of this thing. The future that you're talking about, that fascistic sort of world, looks a lot like what the last three years under Donald Trump have been like, which is you have a person in charge who's disgusting, All of us are screaming, why isn't somebody doing anything about this thing? And meanwhile, there's no way to address it whatsoever. So imagine what the last three or four years under Donald Trump have been like, but just turned up a couple of degrees. And, and, And all of us are still yelling about this stuff and we're still performing it, but we're not performing it for actual change. We're performing it for our personal corporate brand, right? We're trying to show that, okay, I'm not out in the street right now, but this is a thing that offends me, right? It sort of hedges the bet like a corporation. And unfortunately, that corporatization mindset goes through things like social media. And this is one of the reasons why during the era of Trump, social media has taken off. It's where we go to complain about this monster, but we're also complaining as a matter of performance. And we don't even know necessarily that we're always doing it, Mm -hmm. right? Right, right. From like a Marshall... McLuhan perspective, you know, like our behavior is being dictated by our media and the ways we communicate and the ways we entertain ourselves and the ways we educate ourselves and the way we work. And I don't think that's changing anytime soon. I don't either. And that's the sad truth of all of this. And this goes back to what I said about Donald Trump is the symptom and not the disease, right? We have to, and, and this is one thing I keep hoping that everything keeps coming back around to. 
we have to re-examine what we think society should look like and feel like, right? I, I, I think it needs to be a larger conversation about fairness, equality, and, but also st- sustainability, you know? So, like, meanwhile, while we're fighting, I mean, we, we have a, a literal authoritarian fascist in the White House right now. Meanwhile, underneath that, we have a lot of people who are all competing not only to, quote unquote, fight it, but also to profit off of it. I mean, one of the reasons why Donald Trump is president is because the news media is wired to profit off of him. Right. He's the best thing that happened to newspapers and cable news, period. And and whenever I was covering the 2016 campaign, they would tell me that when the cameras were off or we were at the bar at a quality Inn, that's what we talked about. It was the fact that, oh, this is the rising tide that rises all ships. And and people would say, God, I don't know what it's going to be like after he loses. I'm almost dreading it. Well, we can't live in a culture like that. Like, that's not a sustainable culture. I mean, obviously, it's gotten us to the point where our state is failing and we're all endangered. But if you look to other countries, they always have resistance. It just so happens what you do with the resistance. Like, so, for instance, in Russia, there's a lot of protesters. There's a lot of people who consider themselves a resistance to Putin. But they also live in going back to that left wing melancholia where it's like, well, we can't do anything about it. He's all powerful. He controls everything. Plus, also the media, you know, licks his boots every night and carries his water. And so you have people who are still doing the job, but with no expectation of actual change. And and that purgatory for me is less like purgatory and more like hell. You know, the idea that things can get better or that people aren't going to get taken care of. I, uh, I, I'll, I'll just say this, because I know this is some heavy stuff, and, and I know that it's, it's, it's a bummer, but I've been, I've been really hopeful lately. I mean, th- this is a scary time with COVID, and this is a scary time with an economic depression looming, and with Donald Trump and rising fascism in our streets. The fascists are showing who they are which means they're terrified. They would much rather hide behind that veneer that we were talking about. But, you know, with things like Tom Cotton's op-ed calling for troops in the streets, Donald Trump, I mean, literally tried an authoritarian gesture with the Bible and going out in front of that church, like, and, and talking about sending troops in the street. Like, it was it was an actual appeal to fascism. When When they feel threatened is when they have to reveal who they are. And this movement right now is being successful in making these people not only reveal who they are, but look at what they're having to argue. They're having to argue in favor of the Confederacy. That's not something they want to argue over. Like Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, the Bushes, all of them would much rather talk about taxes and laws and dog whistles, right? They can't hide behind that anymore. They have to actually come out and defend the Confederacy, which I think is hopeful. And I think people should feel like there's like a little bit of movement happening here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like the um, the about face when when Trump did, you know, his thing with the Bible and then people got pissed off about it and it became like a big black eye and then, you know esper and whoever else came out and you know apologized for having their picture taken like that's pretty amazing that like you know that somebody that an authoritarian would make this like gesture that you know right out of mussolini and um and so quickly it backfires and so quickly you know he's apologizing and sending the national guard home and everything else well so i grew up um i grew up in like I've now termed it the cult of the shining city, right? Which is the label that I've given to white identity, neo-Confederate evangelicalism, right? So let me tell you something. When Trump pulled the Bible stunt, my blood ran cold, man. I was just like, there it is. That's a holy war, you know, call call to arms. He's going to get the military in there. Blood's going to run in the streets. The fact that it was soundly rejected was a huge turning point. And I actually don't think that we're going to appreciate it for what it was. I think that was a massive turning point in America. And I think that's one of the reasons why the momentum has gone against him since then. He couldn't get the authoritarian move that he wanted. And that doesn't mean he won't try again. And it doesn't mean that he couldn't be successful. But that was a, like you said, it was a blatant Mussolini move, right? It was like, I'm going to declare martial law and I'm going to, you know, paint the streets with blood. 
And the fact that people turned their backs on it and rejected it, I think is a massive reason for hope. I think that's one of the, the bigger moments of modern history that I think people just don't understand yet. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it really just feels like that, you know, the only way we're going to stop this kind of managed democracy that we're talking about or corporate democracy or whatever is if people actually understand <laughs> what's at stake, which... um if you'd have asked me a month ago if that was even possible, I'd be like, no, probably not. But, you know, people seem to be catching on. I think keeping the conversation going and the education going and not f- feeling satisfied or becoming complacent with, like, you know, you know, whatever feeble um, gestures reforms come out of this is um, is going to be key. But I think it's, yeah, I think it's very hopeful yeah, and, and that, that's weird. So, like, I, you know, I said I'd listen to your podcast. Like, you know, I can't believe that we're sitting here talking about hope on, you know, failed states. But it is. It actually is hopeful because, and, and here's the thing. I said earlier that, like, conspiracy theories are all about simplifying matters, right? The things that hold back what we're talking about, the things that are, that, that maybe should give you pause and make you worry, is that the truth is complicated, it really is. Like, to get to the truth, you have to understand a lot of very um, big concepts that, again, I didn't understand until I wrote the book, American Rule. And I had to do, like, all of the background research and go into all this stuff. So it was very, very complicated. The other part is it runs counter to the identity of a lot of these people. Like, when people think about America, they, they consider themselves Americans, waving flags, watching NASCAR. Well, not anymore. You know, and all of this stuff. But the third thing here, this is the reason for hope. It is the truth. You know what I mean? And the truth sings through. And so, like, if you actually have the truth on your side and you're willing to fight for it, you win. But you have to fight for it. It's not enough to simply own it and possess it and know it. You have to get out there and you have to tell people. And when people hear the truth and when it's told in a way that they can hear it and listen to it, it wins. Because this is the truth. The conspiracy theory and all this fascist nonsense are lies. But when you tell the people the truth and you tell it in a way they can hear it, it works. That was Jared Yates Sexton, and um, I know that this is all bummer news coming out of this podcast and everywhere you look these days, but we kind of ended on a message of hope. I'm not sure how that happened, but I'll take it where I can get it for sure. So next we're going to talk to Shane Burley. Um, Just read from his bio here. Shane Burley is a journalist based in Portland, Oregon. He is the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, AK Press. His work has appeared in places such as Al Jazeera, The Baffler, Bandcamp, Truthout, Jacobin, In These Times, and Full Stop. He gets uh, fascism and anti-fascism, and and we talked about Antifa, particularly in relation to to where we are on the streets right now. I sometimes think back, and my parents passed away a number of years ago. But, you know, when I was young, um, like a young adult or late teenager, you know, and I, you know, I was, in, you know, around radical movements and music culture and stuff like that. And, you know, I always think back to there's sort of I used to call them anarchist brands. They're basically social movements that became so prolific that people might buy a T-shirt of it or they might know it or they might adopt the label without being a part of an organization, something like that. So Earth First is one of those. You know, you might see someone with an Earth First shirt. They might not be part of an organization. They might never gone to a tree set or something, but they have a general idea of the philosophy of Earth First. Um, the IWW is sort of like that to a degree. People join it and they might not be in a represented workplace as a union member and they might not know a ton about organizing, but they're, they're interested in supportive, that kind of thing. And Antifa was sort of one of those as well. But the difference between Antifa and maybe all those other kinds of things, Take Back the Land, you know, um, Sea Shepherd, that kind of stuff, was that my dad thought it was great. You know, if I were to explain it to him, uh, I'd be like, oh, these people really don't like Nazis. And they would they would kick them out if they were like marching. So they would kick them out of the street. And he would think, oh, that's that's great. That's wonderful. I don't know about these Earth Firsters, and I'm not so sure about the Sea Shepherd people, 
But Antifa, I mean, who would have a problem with that? That's such a thing. We're talking about Nazis here, after all. Um, and so as I as kind of Antifa grew as a movement, I actually kind of thought there would be a common sense like, well, you know, everyone disagrees over protesting, but you know, anti-fascists, I mean, who, who doesn't like that? Um, and it wasn't until really when the GOP had to confront the fact that it was sheltering white nationalists at events, that a large portion of Trump's active base during the campaign and in the early years of the, of the administration were involved in either uh, openly white nationalist movements or p- things on the fringe right, militia movement, uh, deep right, sovereign citizen, things like that. And so these are actually spaces which interacted with actual anti-fascist protesters. And it used to be that you know years ago, before Trump was on the scene, if, if, if you were a person out there complaining about Antifa, it's likely that you were talking about American Renaissance or something. You were you were actively involved in the white nationalist movement. Otherwise, you wouldn't even know who these people were. And they certainly never would have uh, you know, uh, interfered with your life in any way. And so it's interesting that now Antifa has become such a boogeyman when for years and years and years, it seemed almost like a common sense response. Um, and it wasn't something that had the level of revulsion now. And I think it's just a testament to, well, for one, the state of the G. GOP, um, but also to the way that words kind of are malformed and shift. And so the way that Antifa is often discussed now is as groups of people who violently attack conservatives. Well, traditionally, Antifa were protest movements against the far right. They might try and get people kicked out of a space and, you know, some people on the fringes might get in a fight. But they certainly were not movements about running and attacking conservatives by any means. There's really no basis for that. But what's happening now is that conservative, which traditionally GOP-friendly conservative spaces, are now having an overlap with openly white nationalist movements. I, I would argue that they probably have had this for a long time, but it's much more prolific now. And so it's been a lot easier to see where those clashes are taking place. And then once that association was made in right-wing media, it was really easy to then just run with it because every right-wing politician loves the boogeyman. Sure, sure. And it's really just, uh, you know, it's like the the biggest criticism you could have had before this like particular moment of Antifa, Antifa would have been, oh, come on, we don't need that. There's not really Nazis running around, which is like, you know, demonstrably false, but I could see people, you know, with rose colored glasses on saying, uh, do you really have to go there? But now, you know, I think the difference is it's, you know, there are definitely political actors whose benefit it is in to kind of create this boogeyman, create this, this specter, you know, this of Antifa to, you know, make political hay out of you know it's interesting i've been tracking just hashtag antifa and i like to see whenever this comes up i'm kind of curious what how people are using this on social media how journalists but not really just journalists how internet personality types and we see a lot of this on the kind of semi-far right we used to call them the alt light so the mike cernoviches of the world and Coulter, people like that how is the hashtag antifa being used and what it's being used for is basically to describe anything vaguely left-wing uh ranging from um, you know, centrist Democrats all the way to like insurrectionary anarchists and communists um, to pr- certainly to, to locate any uh, non-white protester. That's especially done. Anyone behaving violently, it's basically called Antifa. So there are, you know, high profile Internet, you know, journalism performers is what I often call them that are out there literally talking about there's an Antifa revolution happening. There's an Antifa commune forming in Seattle. Um, The Antifa protest in Minneapolis. Well, there is no Antifa there. These are Black Lives Matter actions against police violence. It has nothing to do with Antifa. There might be people from Antifa organizations there, just like there are at any large protest. But it has absolutely nothing to do with Antifa. And as one uh, anti-fascist activist I interviewed said, as much as there are quote unquote Antifa people there, they have no privileged role in this and are just part of the rank and file as anybody else. And so it's a, it's a really serious misunderstanding for what's happening, but it's also quite intentional. The reason that Antifa is used as a broad brush isn't just that people don't know the difference between that and other kinds of social movements. It's because the term Antifa is scary to them. And so it's really easy. Okay, well, we don't like these Black Lives Matter protesters in New York. Let's just call them Antifa. And we don't really like these anti-ICE protesters. We'll just call it Antifa. Oh, and that person uh, got into a violent conflict with a police officer. Might as well just call them Antifa. And so that's kind of how 
this builds up steam. And so the term Antifa doesn't mean Antifa anymore. It means an entire constellation of things that scare a certain part of the populace, particularly Trump's base. It means young people. It means people of color. It means left-wing people. It means people who don't want to be governed and don't want to be put down by the police. And so it means all those things into one kind of concise narrative term that they all understand. I'm not going to ask you to define Antifa, but maybe I am. How does Antifa as a movement kind of manifest itself in practical terms? Yeah, that's another kind of thing that's interesting is that the term Antifa didn't just mean anti-fascist. It does now. I think I think anytime a really large swath of people either enter a broad-based social movement that's kind of horizontal and has many types of organizations in it, and also when a political kind of idea becomes incredibly popular, the way that it's used flattens out a bit. So Antifa is the word people know, and when they mean they're, they're describing themselves as an anti-fascist, they'll say Antifa. So there's a certain utility, I'm sure, to that. Traditionally, the term meant militant anti-fascist, so it meant people that weren't going to back down. They, specifically, this was about spaces. So I'm from Portland. And, uh, you know, I mentioned my dad earlier and, and, and the fact that, like, if someone was talking about Antifa, he, he, he really wouldn't find that really offensive. And he was not winning Progressive of the Year award by any means. But the reason was is that in the 1980s, Portland was just filled with neo-Nazi skinhead gangs. I mean, it was completely overwhelmed. Um, we're talking into the thousands of people. And this was a very small city at the time. And. They would really congregate around bars. They would congregate around music venues, punk rock venues specifically. They'd congregate around parks and different things. And anti-fascist groups at the time who considered themselves militant anti-fascists, a lot of these were considered anti-racist skinheads or, or a new organization at the time called Anti-Racist Action. Their goal was to literally push them out of the space. They're not allowed to be here anymore. So they would do whatever it took. Could be protest actions. Some of them would be confrontational with them. But the idea was that they were, they were going to escalate it more. It just wasn't the same as a broad-based social movement. Um, and so those, that number of organizations is actually quite small now. We're not talking about a ton of people. We're talking about very small, isolated groups around the country that do some of those sorts of things. And even in that world, the vast majority of the things, 95% of them are about like information, finding out who's who, kind of raising the alarms about it. And so that's also part of their forcing people out of spaces. Um, and so I think when you talk to someone in a group and you know they say, you know, I interview people from Rose City Antifa, or I interview people from Atlanta Antifa, they describe it in a particular way. These are the particular strategies. This is how how we think of ourselves, and this is kind of the boundaries we put on our organization. And so I think it's important to think about it in that way. Outside of that, lots of people consider themselves anti-fascist and will join those protests. In fact, the majority of people likely consider themselves anti-fascist. But the term Antifa tended to mean that kind of isolated type of thing. And, you know, I'm talking to these militia guys, I keep in touch with them, and they're talking about, you know, during these, uh, the current round of protests like seeing antifa everywhere what do you think they're talking about because i'm not sure that <laughs> i can't get a straight answer for them like i mean i, I think that antifa is just the i think antifa is the new communist i think it's just the word they use to mean anything that feels oppositional and vaguely leftist and so when they're saying we see Antifa everywhere, maybe they mean protesters. Maybe they just mean young people in skinny jeans. It's actually really hard sometimes to know exactly how parameters. And also sometimes what they mean is people of color. Um, and it's a way of problematizing people of color and, and communicating that they saw a group of people they felt was dangerous um, for, for all the reasons that militia people do, which is a largely conspiratorial view of the world. But, you know, the militia folks and folks in that kind of universe um, – would sometimes called like the anti-government right wing. I don't even know if that's an appropriate term, but it, it's filled with such a deeply conspiratorial view of the world that kind of reality is so heavily shaped by internal narratives and storytelling and, and guttural emotions that it's really actually hard to get a really good feel of what's being communicated. Here, here's an example. I, so I'm, I'm in Portland. Portland's up in the northwest corner of Oregon towards the kind of south middle of Oregon, which is, again, like we said, it's, it's all rural around there, is a town called Grants Pass. Well, recently, some of the people in Grants Pass heard a rumor that buses of Antifa were coming to, to harass their town. So they stood around armed to the teeth to stop Antifa from coming in. Now, 
any person could look at that story and know that there's not a chance in hell that that's true. There's no evidence that that would be true. There's nothing that would show that that would possibly take place. Whereas the financial infrastructure for the buses, who's paying for the buses, who are the people, what are they coming there for? There's all like the Right, right. All the normal things that would to make sense of the world, to hear a story and understand why it would be true, all that's out the window. Instead, Antifa are coming to harass my podunk town, and I'm going to arm up, and I'm going to go out and stop them. I mean, this this is requiring a really deep mistrust of, like, the materiality of the world, to, like, live in a world where we have a consensus on reality. Um, not to make fun of Grant's Pass, because I love Grant's Pass, but, like, the, the point being is that, like, I think that that understand that misunderstanding of how other communities work is so is really deeply laid. And so when people are talking about Antifa, particularly if they have no relationship to social movements or particularly communities of color, I, maybe it makes sense to them this idea that Antifa is running around everywhere, that Antifa's under your bed, that Antifa's coming for your um, you know, your Dairy Queen or whatever. I, it, it's really it's 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 hitting a level of kind of absurdity that it's hard to take seriously, but it's leading people to actual acts of violence. I mean, there was recently a story about a family in Washington that come from Spokane um, over to Forks, Washington to go camping. And they had a bus. They had like an old school bus. And when they parked to get gas, people literally rushed them and then blocked them into their camps thinking they were Antifa on buses. Like that is I mean, it's it's kind of hilarious, but it's also horrifying. Like I can't imagine being with my family somewhere and I all of a sudden have having people appear out of nowhere and like, like barricade you. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's upsetting. It's, it's absurd and it's upsetting. And, 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 you know, to add insult to injury, these, these this mythology about black lives matter and Antifa violence at the same time as, as the militia movement is just filled with automatic weapons and spreading around the country. And, uh, you know, people are being fired on at protests and they're basically preparing for a civil war. It just feels as though the obviously the rules are very different for how how uh, the left is viewed versus those community. Um, but it's just being pumped out at such a heavy rate that it leads to serious acts of violence. I mean, there was a shooting at a protest in Seattle. This comes from an ideological change where conspiratorial views of Antifa, whatever that's supposed to mean, whatever that's supposed to signal to people, is pumped up so heavily that fear anger resentment starts to fuel these people and moves them towards acts of violence and i mean i must imagine on a practical level it has to complicate what individual activists or antifa activists or antifa groups are trying to do when you have this microscope on you when you have this like population of like conspiracy-minded right-wing people who are amped up and out to find you, even if you don't exist, or, you know, especially when you don't exist, probably makes it unsafe to leave your house or actually get down to the the work of being anti-fascist. Oh, absolutely. And, and in a lot of ways, it just escalates violent conflict. I mean, the, we're talking about, you know, spreading, you know, activist personal information, posting photos of them, their home address, like oftentimes very incorrect information about them. Um, those people are scared and they have to do things to protect themselves. Like communities are now reckoning with the fact that they don't want violence in their spaces, but they have to figure out a way to stop basically right when people come coming to their houses, making accusations about them. Um, and so like, I think it's leaving people with a lot, very few options because they're being singled out oftentimes for absolutely nothing other than going to a protest like people do in their lives. And, now we're in a space where basically they're being characterized as part of some kind of I don't, insurrectionary movement to tear down the foundations of Western culture. It's just it's such a bizarre notion that these people have to answer for the narrative that's been pumped into them that they have no kind of connection to. So there's there's several videos um, of and so one's of Rose City Antifa, one's of New York City Antifa. I, I think one was from a Redneck Revolt. Um, I'm sure there'll be others, you know, I'm sure this was it, but they, they showed videos of them <laughs> doing exactly what you would assume they were doing, you know, training people on self-defense and talking about their ideas of being a militant organization. Those are militant organizations. They put out articles and press releases that exactly explain who they are, what they are, 
they think about things, which is what people saw in the videos. But that's not really the function of it. What it is is to find a few catchy sound bites and see, see, their, see Antifa's violent because this particular group that is very clear about what its methods are you know, talks about violence or talks about self-defense. Therefore, uh, because we use Antifa in such a broad way, we can use that then to demonize all kind of leftist protesters. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that it comes out at the same time as lawsuits are filed against anti-fascist groups. That books about Antifa are coming out. You know, I think there's there's sort of a there's a cultural space of of self-reinforcing narratives in the kind of right-wing media sphere, and it just serves their interests to just kind of pump out fear-mongered videos like this. You know. Um, particularly when they just don't hold much news value. I mean, those videos don't teach anything to anyone about anything important, you know, and that's not really the function of Project Veritas. It's to take video out of context and kind of piss people off at the left. Um, but and that's essentially building a lot of people's careers. A lot of people are founding their careers on their ability to kind of drum up outrage in a conservative base. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And then I think that naturally leads us to Trump's tweet that he's going to declare Antifa, a terrorist organization, and uh, you wrote about that. I thought that was a great article. Um, I mean, so what is the deal there? Can Donald Trump, can the president actually declare Antifa a terrorist organization? So the, the short answer is no. I mean, there's really no method to declare them a terrorist organization. That's not a legal distinction outside of a foreign organization where you have to prove a real foreign leadership connection, training camps, direct like funding. Um, it's also really hard to make the case for an, for an organization, quote unquote, a broad based movement of which they're broadly calling Antifa that hasn't killed anybody, particularly when the flip side of that movement, the far right, has just killed thousands of people. Um and uh, about 150 people just in the last three years in the U.S. alone, um, and obviously hundreds and thousands more on the international scale. And so it's really hard to make that case in any kind of State Department. That being said, um, that doesn't matter as much as what can happen. So um, when Trump signals and, 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 and Attorney General uh, Bill Barr signals that uh, Antifa is to be treated as a terrorist organization, and more than that, what they mean by Antifa means Black Lives Matter, anti-racist protesters, anti-Trump protesters, and so on. Uh, what it sends a message to police departments is these are violent protesters that have to be put down for the safety of your community. And that gives a pass for aggressive tactics. It sends a message to, DA, to DAs that um, – that these are people that need to be aggressively prosecuted, that uh, enhancements need to be put on sentencing. It sends a message to through the Joint Terrorism Task Force to law enforcement that we need wiretapping, there needs to be grand juries, there needs to be undercover investigations. Um, it sends the message that budgets need to be moved from covering white nationalist terrorism, which is a real, very present threat in a lot of people's lives. You know, I'm a Jew, I'm too scared to go to, to synagogues because of uh, the kind of just string of shootings that happen at these places. But they're taking funding away from that and to put them to look at leftist social movements. Uh, In the article I did for NBC, I talk about what we call the Green Scare, which hit Oregon really hard. And basically it was in the wake of Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front, sort of like arson, vandalism events. These were animal rights activists and and radical environmentalists. Very, very small things that basically did some property destruction. Well, it was used as an excuse to do sweeping investigations of all environmental activists. We're talking about like liberal vegan groups and things like that. Um, really spurious prosecutions where uh, informants were used to basically prosecute people that were really doubtful whether or not they'd been involved in things. Really huge terror enhancements. Uh, sweeping legislations were put in. So there's a lot of things that happened under the kind of rubric of using the phrase eco-terrorism, even when it was really hard to declare a group a terrorist organization. I think... We can add to that, though. It is possible for them to to make legislation. They did this in the case of the Green Scare. It was called the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, and it declared certain types of activism that basically caused corporate uh, money, corporations' money. So, like, you know, it, it, the language was really meant to be sort of like about destruction of corporate property, you know, breaking windows or something like that, or arson. But it can broadly be understood to mean like even boycotts and stuff like that. So it, it basically uh, made certain parts of those movements illegal. But you'd think a similar thing could be done here, where they target specific things that you know they think anti-fascists do and try and make those illegal. Um, on top of that, they could, for example, use executive orders like they did uh, around 9-11 to try and target activists. Again, 
it's hard to make the case, but you know, anything's possible. Donald Trump won the white house. So, I mean, there, there are things that can be done. Um, so I think while there was a lot of kind of hay made about the fact that, no, he, he really can't do that. That's a stupid thing for him to say. And it is, um, it does have real world effects when you normalize this idea that these are violent terrorists also. And I think we shouldn't ignore this. It sends the message to people in the rank and file vigilante movements, the militias, things like that, that they can act in violence under the rubric of defending their communities. And, and that's, I think what frightened me the most, because we know that, Right-wing groups and left-wing groups do not get policed in the same way in this country at all. Um, You know, right-wing groups tend to move with some impunity. Um, If they do get busted, you know, they're gently led to the to the police car. You know, they're not. And um, as opposed to, you know, God forbid, a leftist gets busted. Um, And yeah, and it's just like that to me is just you know, a craven political calculation on Trump's part, you know, saying it's open season on leftists, it's open season on Antifa, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. It's it's the exact same messaging. In what instances or in what ways has Antifa been most effective? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think they've been most effective – and it depends on what we're how we're using the term Antifa. I'll talk more broadly about anti-fascist social movements, student movements, church groups, including you know the kind of groups that use the phrase Antifa. But I think what where they've been most effective is is disrupting far right events. So, for example, Richard Spencer is pretty open about this. He can't do public events anymore because it gets shut down by Antifa. That's really disruptive to their movement. It's created a really, really large mode of decline. Um, you know, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, there's a lot of people that, that really can't have the kind of public careers that they have been having. And those public events are really essential for them building up a movement. I think the other thing is putting pressure on tech companies to pull platforms. That's been really successful, I think, for anti-fascist activists. Um, making the case about who people are, which I think is really tough in a lot of cases, has been done very well and getting information out to people and creating a, basically a, a culture of everyday anti-fascism where people disallow certain behaviors and certain kinds of um, movements. So I think that that's actually been um, really – those all have actually shown very big real-world results, particularly in the decline of the alt-right over the last couple of years. And um, what's what's going on in Portland like in general in the anti-fascist – Movement and also, you know, specifically in the current rate wave of insurrectionary activity. Well, obviously, the protests have been really large out here um, and have not been orchestrated by Antifa in any way. <laughs> like it said, uh, lots of community groups, lots of young people. Um, I was just at the uh, protest today. Um, where they're really kind of boiling down demands to defunding the police and, and making it really tangible. They want to pull at least $50 million out of the police budget and pull it to social services and things like that. So that's actually really grown. Um, in the beginning, it was really aggressive. There was big riots downtown, things like that. It's actually grown since then to have, you know, times 15,000 people. It's not a very large city too. I think people have to remember that. Um, and, uh, I think in terms of anti-fascist groups, they're very reactive. So when there's the activity of the far right, they're kind of around organizing and doing things. Um, but there hasn't been as much, particularly because of the uh, the COVID-19. I know the Pop Mob, which is an anti-fascist group in Portland, did a lot of the mutual aid work, um, helping get food distribution to people and you know people to pick up medicine for people that couldn't leave their houses, particularly people who are immune compromised. They created a lot of hand sanitizer and got it out to people. So that's what a lot of those groups had done in kind of the meantime. Um, and I think because because of COVID-19, because of the shift in politics, and also because of the decline of some of the groups locally, like Patriot Prayer and some of the Proud Boy groups, largely because of anti-fascist protests, um, I think that there's there's been less of an immediate need from those groups to respond to somebody. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
So that's it. Not much else to say. This was Failed State Update, and I am your host, Joseph L. Flatley. Be sure to uh, check the show notes for everybody's links and lots of good things to read and check out. Follow me on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. Um, sign up for my newsletter, lennyflatley.substack.com. And if you need to get a hold of me and you don't feel like going on Twitter, you can uh, do that through my website, lennyflatley.net. Party.